Turn to Luke chapter 2. I'll begin reading in a few moments in verse 22. We can turn there for now. Luke chapter 2. You know, it's common to hear people talk about a uh, bucket list. And by that, usually they mean these high-value experiences that they want to have before they uh, kick the bucket, um, if it were. And that phrase, kick the bucket, using that to refer to death, goes back to at least 1785, probably before that. It has a somewhat gruesome history that we won't get into. But the phrase of a bucket list of things you want to accomplish before you die probably goes back to a, a movie from about 13 years ago where two terminally ill men went on a road trip to accomplish a wish list before they, before they died. Uh, there's examples um, of other people with this. A notable one would be George H.W. Bush who wanted to go sky, skydiving again and he did at the age of 90. Perhaps you remember that. Um, if we were to survey this room, we were to ask you, what are some things that would be on your bucket list? What are some things you would want to do? You might have answers like a famous city that you want to go to, you know, Rome or Paris or New York. Maybe you want to visit the Holy Land and walk where Jesus walked. Maybe you want to climb Mount Everest. Um, no, thank you. Uh, um, but, but maybe something strenuous like that. Maybe you want to write a novel. Maybe you want to... On a more serious note, reconcile with a certain relationship. Well, our two characters today, as we wrap up our series on the supporting cast of Christmas, two characters, in a sense, had one item on their bucket list. They wanted to see the Messiah. They wanted to see the Messiah. And their sweet story, how in their, in their old age, they were able to see the infant Messiah it's a fitting conclusion to our series. Both because of their experience of setting their aging eyes on the Messiah, but also what they say. One of them in particular, the pointedness of his comments about the Messiah is so significant. So I want to read this now. Luke chapter 2. I'll actually start in verse 21. And when eight days had passed... Before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, and he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce, pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. That very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we end our series by looking at these two characters, Simeon and Anna. But before we get to them, there's this nugget about Jesus and his parents going to the temple, which is where they end up meeting Simeon and Anna. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Because there's some significance in what takes place. Mary and Joseph, they simply are obeying Obeying the Lord's directive by presenting their child to the Lord. We see this in verses 21 to 24. That's the context, really, for this encounter with Simeon and Anna. To, to place this in the narrative, because I know we're, we're reading in Matthew, we're reading in Luke. They don't, all include, they don't both include the same details. Sometimes we can maybe get lost in the chronology of this. These events would have taken place, obviously, after Jesus' birth. In Bethlehem, after the visit by the shepherds, but before the Magi come to visit, uh, before the family flees to Egypt. Uh, in fact, Luke doesn't even mention the detour down into Egypt and back at all. He, he omits that. It's not a contradiction between him and Matthew. It's just that he focuses on some things that Matthew does not. So this takes place after the visit to the, from the shepherds, about a week later, at least with the circumcision, because it says when he was eight days old, when eight days had passed, um, he was circumcised. He was circumcised in obedience to the law. Genesis 17, uh, first, God gives this sign of circumcision to Abraham as the sign of the covenant that, that all these male children ought to be circumcised. It's reiterated in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And his parents are just simply obeying. They're just simply obeying the Lord in this. He's then presented to the Lord 33 days later. Uh, this would have been after this prescribed period uh, to purify, for, for Mary to purify her body. It was a period of her being ceremonially unclean after having a child uh, that was also part of the law. And after this period, they were to, she was to come and present the child to the Lord. This was in obedience to Exodus chapter 13. I'll look at verse, just verses 2 and 12, although of course the whole chapter would give more detail. But in this passage it says, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And a little bit later it says, So you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. And the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males, belong to the Lord. Why? Well, why this practice? It was a continual reminder of how the Lord had delivered them out of Egypt, 
through the final plague of taking the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so after that, it was told to them that the firstborn of of every offspring that the Lord had preserved, it belongs to him. So if it was a sacrificial animal, they were to sacrifice the firstborn. If it was a, if it was a human, if it was a child, they were to uh, dedicate that child to the Lord in a sense by sacrificing a, an animal in their, in their place. So it was this perpetual reminder every time of the Lord's deliverance. That's the role that, that ongoing tradition can play in a right sense. There's things that we do in an ongoing way, right? We, just a couple nights ago, we had a candlelight service. Um, it, it's, it's neat, it's often sentimental, but it can be loaded with significance. If we remember Christ stepping into the darkness as the light of the world. Or we take communion on the first Sunday of each month and act loaded with significance as we're remembering again and again our trust in Christ, his substitution for us, our need to take him in by faith. Well, this act would have been an ongoing way for them to remember the Lord's deliverance and their, their dependence on him and, and dedicate, in this case, this child uh, to the Lord. Now, it wasn't necessary for it to take place at the temple. Uh, but because they were so close, they're only five miles away, they did go to the temple for this. And they brought a sacrifice. Notice in verse 24, it says they brought a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is the alternative sacrifice available to the poor. Leviticus chapter 12. I don't have this one on here, but Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8 describes this. It says, if she cannot afford a lamb, she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Why is that included in here? It's one more reminder of the poverty in which Jesus stepped down into. That when Jesus stepped down into humanity, he stepped all the way down. He stepped down into a poor family. You need to remember, though, that the socioeconomic difference between the richest human family and the poorest human family is nothing compared to the stepping down from the glories of heaven, even if you were to step down into a palace. And yet, he stepped all the way down. And it's a reminder that he didn't just come merely for the wealthy, but he came even among and for the poor. And so even within these narratives of his birth that we've been reading, we've seen a a variety of different people coming and coming to him. But it's a reminder here that he was born into a poor family. Now as we think about these acts though, the circumcision, the offering of these animals, this ceremonial period of being unclean, it's good for us to reflect that Jesus had no indwelling sin nature of his own to cover. He didn't need to go through circumcision and sacrifices as a picture of his own redemption. Just like he wouldn't later need to be baptized for any kind of wrongdoing on his part. But it was a way in which he was obeying the law, even at this point passively, his parents fulfilling this, but fulfilling every aspect of the law as the the perfect child of Israel as the perfectly obedient one, every facet of the law fulfilled, no, no aspect of the law overlooked. 
In fact, just the verse after we read, um, so we read to verse 38, but look at verse 39. It summarizes this section. It says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee by way of Egypt. You know, there's a detour in there. But this fulfilling everything according to the law, that's why we tried to look at some of these passages. These aren't just random occurrences. Jesus is, even as a, as a child, is, is fulfilling everything that the law demands. We don't sacrifice an animal now when there's a firstborn child. We've had several families uh, this past year have their firstborn child, and we didn't incorporate animal sacrifice as part of our Sunday morning worship, right, to, to, to redeem this firstborn child. Why not? Because that system is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Christ. He, he was the one perfectly that each of these sacrifices point ahead to. And, and now it's fulfilled. There's a popular song that's often on the radio this time of year of Mary, Did You Know? Uh, and reflecting on, you know, did Mary know who this child was that she was holding? I, I think of that with this sacrificial system. Like, Mary, did you know that this time of sacrifices was coming to an end? Did, did, did you know that this baby would be the ultimate sacrifice that this turtle dove that you're sacrificing now is looking ahead to? Did, did you know that this was wrapping up? We don't know, but we look back and we can certainly see. When Jesus' sacrifice was made on the cross, that thick veil separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two, showing that there is access directly now to the Father. No more need for temples, no more need for sacrifices. He fulfilled it. But in perfect obedience, this is being carried out now. Now, as they were there to present this child to the Lord, as they were there uh, as part of this, this tradition, this, this ritual that the Lord had given them, it's when they encounter Simeon and Anna. So I want to turn our attention there. Simeon and Anna and their long-awaited Savior. I want to first talk about what these two have in common, because there are some similarities between both of them, which I think is part of why they're included here together. And then we'll look at some individual things there. Both were, both were aged. Both were older. We're told Anna's age. We're told that she is 84. We're told that she had been a widow since her husband died after seven years of marriage. Because people married fairly young, that means she probably married as a teenager, was a widow in her early 20s, and then for probably 60 years had been a widow. We're not told how old Simeon is. It's implied, though, that he's been waiting for a long time for this day. These are two people who are faithful to the end. Faithful when it would have been easy to grow cynical at waiting, to grow frustrated at the growing pains in their bodies, to grow weary at the faithlessness of a younger generation, and yet they were faithful here to this, to this point. Brief side note, I, I love being in a church that has such a range of ages. I, I love that at our Christmas Eve service, we had squirmy little kids making noises throughout. But I also love that there's all the way through retirees. We have people in their 70s and 80s, and I'm not sure about 90s, but at least 70s and 80s. And people that have been faithful for 
40, 50, 60 years faithful to Christ. And just their very presence is a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness. How good that is. These two were in older age. They were both devoted to the Lord. Simeon is described here as righteous and devout in verse 25. Righteous and devout. Righteous in the way that every believer is righteous. Righteous through faith. Righteous through trust in the Lord. He would have been regularly offering sacrifices that the Lord had prescribed as a way to, to, to cover his sin, but, but knowing that there was a great sacrifice to come. Devout, it describes him as righteous and devout. Devout can be translated as cautious because he cautiously sought to follow God's word. There's a tender heart to follow the Lord implied in that term devout. He's righteous and devout. Anna, we're just told that she remained at the temple serving with fasting and prayer all of her days were to imply from that a devotion to the Lord. So both were older. Both were devoted to the Lord. Both prophesied. Anna is called a prophetess, although her exact words aren't recorded. Simeon's song is a prophecy about the identity of a child, about the identity of this child. And both, most notably, were filled with expectancy. Simeon, it says, had been looking for, in verse 25, the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. That term consolation, it means comfort. It, it, it comes from passages like Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. I think, ah, ah don't have it on here. Um, Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, where if you recall from our series in Isaiah a while ago, uh, Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are kind of loaded with stinging rebukes and coming judgment and some, some nuggets of hope but, but stronger language both for the people of Israel and for other nations of the Lord's coming judgment. And then it starts to turn in chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 and 2 it says, Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. And it's that idea of comfort that this term consolation of Israel comes from. We've been waiting for the one who would fulfill this comfort, that the warfare against sin would end as the Messiah would come and remove all iniquity. And so Simeon is waiting for this. And he was told that he would not see death, verse 26, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Just think for a moment. How, how, would that affect it? how would that affect his life to have been told that you're not going to die before you see the Lord's Messiah? What, what would he have thought about like, every child he saw? Like, right? Is this the one? You know, would he have known if he got sick, well, I guess this sickness isn't going to end in death because I haven't yet seen the Messiah Right? I mean, how would that have affected his, his life? Well, we're told at this point, now he, sees, now he sees the Messiah. Anna gave thanks in her expectancy. She spoke to, of, of him to, to all who were waiting and looking for God's redemption, it says. These are examples of persevering faith. 
Well, I want to look more specifically, though, at what they say. And so in Simeon, we get some more detailed words. In Simeon's account, we see, starting in verse 29, where it says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. This, this prayer of Simeon has been known in church history as the nunc dimittis. It's from the Latin translation of these first couple words of now let your servant depart, you know, some, some rendering of that. And, and so throughout church history, going back, um, going back to the early years of the church, this was often prayed at a funeral service as the body was carried out for the last time from the, from the church, and they would pray, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Uh, believers who were facing martyrdom would pray this, would remember these words. So as we look at it, we see a few different things. First is this statement that he's able to depart in peace. Departure in peace in verse 29. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Simeon could depart in peace simply because he had met Jesus. And so he was now ready to die in peace. It's a profound picture of faith fulfilled. His eyes had had seen God's salvation. It had not yet been accomplished. Jesus was just an infant. He was at most six weeks old at this point. And yet, Simeon knew that this child was going to grow up to fulfill all that the Lord had said and, and die as Isaiah 53 predicted. And so he says, I can, I can depart in peace because I've seen your salvation. Over the summer, we did a series on death and dying and what happens next, this statement, being able to hold this and say this and mean this, if you face your own death, is an indication that your, your trust is in the Lord. You say, Lord, I, my, my years may be coming to an end, my life may be coming to the end, but I can depart in peace because I've seen your salvation. So Simeon can depart in peace because he has seen the Lord's salvation for, for Gentiles as well as for Jews. It's so interesting to me in so many of these passages we've looked at over the last three or four weeks uh, describe the way in which God is, is saving not just the Jewish people but, but throwing the doors wide for, for all to come to the Messiah and giving examples of that as well. And so likewise here again we see that. Verse 30 says, For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He quotes from Isaiah again, Isaiah 42, 6, that the Messiah would be a, a light to the Gentiles. A reminder that God's plan had, had always been to go to the nations, for the gospel to go to the nations. It wasn't an invention of New Testament apostles. And Simeon says, I'm beginning to see this. He's a light to the Gentiles and... and the glory of your people Israel. There's particular glory to the people as they were waiting for this Messiah, the perfect king, and he's coming from within the people Israel. So the doors are wide to the nations, but there's this particular glory for Israel. Notice Mary and Joseph's response, verse 33. Simeon's words pause briefly, and they'll pick back up. But in this pause, verse 33, it says, his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. 
pointed this out, I think, last week also, but for at least the third time, they're hearing news about who this child is, and they, they ponder it. They're amazed by it. It's sinking in more and more, and so this is yet one more occurrence of this. They'd already been told individually that this child would save his people from their sins, and now it's reiterated again. But unfortunately, Simeon doesn't only bring good news. And for the first time, at least that we have recorded, Mary and Joseph are told about the suffering that Jesus would experience. And so as he resumes his message, that's what it turns to and focuses on. Verses 34 and 35, we see words about separation and opposition and affliction. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. It says this child will result in separation, in in opposition for the the fall and rise of many. They they will fall and rise in, in response to him. Are they responding to him in faith or rejecting? Are they responding in saving faith or in prideful opposition? The The same responses that we've seen in microcosm with, say, Herod and the wise men uh, or or the shepherds and the scribes. And we've seen people responding or rejecting. That's going to continue throughout Jesus' earthly life and, of course, to continue through today as well. If we had a little more time, we would look at a passage like Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. We see a couple incidents there. One in which Jesus is in a crowded home and a man who's paralyzed, his friends come and bring him and they they lower him into the house. And if you remember what Jesus says, the man's paralyzed and what Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. And and some accuse him of blasphemy, that he would forgive sins. And and he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say this man, stand up and walk, and he heals the man. And, And he's... Again, charged, charged with blasphemy. We see some responding to him in faith and forgiveness and others rejecting him. It goes on after that in Matthew 9 of Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector and then eating with other tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees were upset that he would do that. That's what Simeon means by the, the rise and fall of many. How are they responding to the Messiah? He was assigned to be opposed, it says. Again, you might think, what, what, what would Mary have been thinking at that point? Um, what would she have been wondering about? Um, why would people oppose my baby? Why would people oppose our Messiah? Every, every mother, I think at some point, thinks that their child can, can do no wrong. Unlike every other mother, Mary just happened to be right on that. And so she might be wondering, why? But both as the mother to this child, but also as a a faithful Israelite waiting for the coming Messiah, she might wonder why. But perhaps the words of Isaiah 53 would come to her mind. Isaiah 53, verse 3, where it predicted of the Messiah, he was despised and forsaken of men. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Even there, we see this indication of of rejection by many. And then it gets even more pointed. Look at verse 35. He says to Mary, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. sign of the grief that she would experience. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, there's, there's ways in which he is intentionally, I don't know if distancing himself is the right word, but, but helping his mother see that his identity is not merely as her child. We see it even at age 12 when he was in the temple and he told his parents, I must be about my father's business. We see it in Matthew 12, Verses 48 to 50, when Mary comes to visit Jesus with his half-brothers, and, and, and somebody tells him, hey, your mother is here. And Jesus says, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hands to his disciples and said, behold my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So there were times like that where he's, he's making clear his his role in interaction with Mary is not just that of a normal child, but, but even more pointed, I think this looks ahead to his death. Uh, because we're told in Matthew, or in John 19.25, that when Jesus was beaten and crucified and nails stuck through his hands, that his mother was there. John 19.25, as the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and some others listed. So, so even here in these words of Simeon, as Jesus was five or six weeks old, it's looking ahead to his death. We turn from this to Anna. And we look at Anna's example here. Less description. We don't have her words recorded it's kind of the inversion of Simeon. We don't know much about Simeon as his identity, but we have a lot of his words recorded. Anna, we don't know anything about what she said. We know her general tone, but we're given some more details about, about who she is. We're told her father's name, the daughter of Phanuel. We're told the tribe she's in. Uh, we're told her age. We're told that how, how long she'd been a widow for. We're told that she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and, and prayer. We're given some more details about her. She appears to be uh, one who, who lived there at the temple complex in the broader, broader mount there that was part of the, the temple complex that it's believed there were some, some dwellings for a, a person like Anna because of her unique role as a prophetess, perhaps because of other ways that she served there. I think of two people that I met um, overseas in, in Russia, in the church in Tombov. They built the church with a small apartment in it that this older widow woman lived in. And, and she was there to, to help unlock the church and let people in. She, she was there to, to serve in different ways. And that was, that was her home. In Azerbaijan, in Baku, there was a an older gentleman with some physical difficulties that, that likewise believe that he lived there at the church itself. And in some way, Anna, it seems like she was there at the temple permanently. 
And then verse 38, it says, At that very moment, when this was transpiring between Simeon and the baby Jesus, it says, She came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You know, sometimes an event doesn't live up to our expectations. And maybe you've had that experience. There was a long-awaited trip to Disneyland, and then you get there and you don't realize that you're going to be waiting in line for three hours for every ride that you do. Or a honeymoon that was spoiled by three days of food poisoning. Or maybe Christmas came and went, and you had dreams of what you were going to get, and that didn't happen. But for Anna here, after all this anticipation, there's no sense of that. There was gratitude, and then there was broadcasting it to everyone else who was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She saw God's promise fulfilled, even in its infant stage. When she was so grateful, she began to share it with others. Uh, just like the example we saw with the shepherds. They they heard, they went, they saw Jesus, and it says they told everyone. And so now Anna, she sees this, and she's telling everyone. What great little reminders for us that when we encounter Christ, we are to do the same. Well, I just want to wrap up with this. How are, how are you responding to Jesus? The words here from Simeon, says of Jesus, in verses 34 and 35, we just read, he's a sign to be opposed, he's there for the rise and fall of many, sword will pierce your own soul. And then there's a phrase after that, at the very end of verse 35, it says, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What was true then is, is true today. Our response to Jesus reveals what's going on in our hearts read a story of a man who took his friend on a tour of Paris. And they went then to all the famous sites. They went to the Louvre. They looked at the great paintings there. They went to a concert hall and heard a, a wonderful symphony. At the end of the evening, the man asked his friend, well, what, what did you think? And his friend said, well, yeah, I wasn't, wasn't really all that impressed. Um, paintings didn't seem that great. I don't know what the big deal is. The, Music wasn't really up to my liking and just kind of criticized everything. And his friend said, well, to be honest, the museum and its art was not on trial. Um, you were. Uh, and in fact, this art and this music has stood the test of time. And, and your attitude reveals the smallness of your perspective and the smallness of your own appreciation. Likewise, Jesus isn't on trial, but, but every soul is, every one of us is. How will we respond to him? Will, will we respond in faith and trust? Will we repent of sin that's revealed? Will we receive the same assurance of Simeon that we can depart in peace, whether that's soon or decades from now? Can we say like Simeon, Lord, I... I'm ready to depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So every little story like this, true story, true account in Scripture, is a, 
It's an opportunity for us to, to, to think again, how am I responding to Jesus? Have I admitted my sin? Have I believed in him? Have I trusted in him? Can, can I depart in peace?